Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. It's podcast time, Open Door Talks with me, Lex Luca. Welcome along. This is your guide on how to move forward with your music. Today, we are joined by Kapi, a Nigerian producer, DJ and artist. Kapi has collaborated with the likes of Techno, Fireboy, DML and Megan Thee Stallion. She's DJed all around the world and works closely with a whole host of brands from the likes of Apple to Pepsi. Kapi offers her insights and wisdom on building up your own brand and the importance of authenticity. We discuss the art of DJing and Cuppy's experience of being an artist and what she's learned from working at Rock Nation. Cuppy has a wealth of serious knowledge, guys. She's also a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, a stylista, and she shares loads and loads of tips and tricks for you guys to take your music to the next level. Let's go. Here we are in the fantastic studios down here at Tile Yard in King's Cross, and we are joined by DJ Cuppy. How are you? I'm so good. Listen, thank you so much for having me here. I think it's a really exciting opportunity to really dive deep. And just even this environment, I love that you record here. It's so inspiring. you got the pink lights. We brought those out especially for you. As you should, but it's really exciting. And it's also nice to just speak to, you know, a fellow creative as well. Fantastic. Well, we're super grateful to have you. So let's start off. Introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do. (laughs) So that's always interesting because I'm a lot of things. But in a nutshell, you know, I'm Kapi. I am a Nigerian DJ, philanthropist, artist, influencer, businesswoman, entrepreneur. And I think most importantly, you know, being an African advocate So we're going to spend the next 60 minutes or so talking about your career and the lessons that you've learned from it. So let's start off back when you were young. How would you describe yourself growing up as a youngster? Well, I grew up in one of the best cities in the world, Lagos, Nigeria. And Lagos is actually not the capital of Nigeria. A lot of people think it is. It's not. It's Abuja. But Lagos is that cultural hub, the traffic, you know, the commercial madness. And one of my most fond memories is definitely sitting in the car, listening to Fela Kuti with my dad. I grew up in the mainland. We literally had the biggest garden ever. We would run around in fields. And from a very young age, I could remember between church, you know, singing songs and going to school and doing music music classes. I could drum before I could even talk. And as African heritage, music has always been a way of communicating. So I grew up definitely around music subconsciously. And even with my language, Yoruba, you know, the kind of the phonetics of it is very, very sort of up and down. So we always know that it's important to express yourself through sound. Amazing. So, yeah, obviously, Felakuti. Nigeria drums are in the culture right it's in our blood um you know I I have been a massive fan of Fela Kuti ever since I was young my favorite song is Yellow Fever um and I've been lucky enough to visit the shrine which is where Fela Kuti actually you know held his holy grail 
He really developed a lot of his famous records there. So much that, I mean, one of my favorite pictures in the world is a picture of him and Paul McCartney at the shrine in Lagos in the 60s. So obviously that's your... That's my background. That's, that's your background. You know, everything that Cuppy is, you know, I always say we have to look at the past because it always shapes the present. So, you know, despite... I always consider myself a hybrid. I moved to the UK when I was 16. You know, but I also think that one when you're born into this world, I, I've always felt like I had a purpose. But, you know, when I think about my growing up, I think those teenage years, those young childhood memories is what's formed the person I am now. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's hard to change who you are. And there was a massive, massive kind of campaign, not only by myself, but so many African artists, which is really, you know, um, Africa to the world. And it's about taking us and putting us anywhere, you know, like tile yard today, but never being able to take the African out of us. <laughs> so growing up in that environment of the drums and fellow cutie, was there a stage where you really got into making music and, you know, going from there? Well, my musical journey is very interesting. It was a very, very, very natural one. It was, um, it was just a hobby. It was out of just pure passion, which, you know, I think a lot of people share and I think that's the way music should be I think it should be a feeling you know I always say to people I'm 30 years old now and you know of all industries to be in being in the music industry entertainment there's certainly other industries that would probably be far 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 less stressful and probably there'd probably be more money in there but I've just had music as a concert in my life. So my first kind of big embarkment into music was actually moving here. And it comes from a, a sad feeling. It comes from feeling homesick. So, you know, sort of just suddenly being 16 and being in a new environment, being in the UK, you know, I sounded different. I looked different. I felt different. I didn't have the same taste as everyone. I was so homesick. My parents put me in a boarding school in Canterbury. And, you know, when you think about, being homesick I guess now I look back and the perspective allows me to recognize I was very very homesick I miss my friends I miss the food I miss the weather and the one thing I could carry with me which was not the African sunshine nor the yummy Nigerian suya which is like a spicy meat um, was music and that was also the year that the first the second or first generation iPod came out and so I filled it up with music and it was very different. Streaming streaming wasn't available then. And so you had what you had. You know, I also had, actually, I also had like a, um, a CD player, like a Walkman, which I loved. But I would just use music to escape. And it was always records like Fela. It was records like Lagbaja, another um, Yoruba artist. It was records like King Sonyade. Um, and just allow it to, for those... I was going to say three minutes, but Fela records are like nine minutes. Just escape. And, you know, music came as a form of therapy to me. So as I kind of got older between the ages of 16, 17, 18, um, doing my A-levels at the time, you know, I really used music as an escape and just fell in love with the idea of creating a fusion. You know, I sort of thought there doesn't have to be a massive geographic disparity. There can also be synergies formed and that is also the time that I think Afropop really started to cross over and my first big opportunity was when my parents asked me 
Copy, what do you want for your 16th birthday? And I wanted decks. And so they got me some secondhand um, CDJs. I think they were CDJ, Pioneer CDJs. They were like Pioneer, um, what were they? 1000s or something. And um, and I got a very small DJM 400 mixer and I played away. And it was so fun because then, you know, that, that side of things uh there was a lot of mp3 downloads coming up so there were naughty things like acquisition limewire and i was just getting access to new music from nigeria even though i wasn't there and probably mixing the worst records together you know bpms of 70 trying to mix them into bpms of you know 100 but it was very trial and error and my first gig i remember was a friend and um, his friend was turning 16 and I basically ruined the party because I couldn't play music. Why can I play music? Because I had no idea at the time that I had um, a filter on my mixer. I didn't know how to turn it off. But then I thought, gosh, wow. You know, when I finally did for the 10 minutes I could play, it felt really good. And um, I really enjoyed myself. Uh, so it's interesting because a lot of the... The history of my love for music and the the birth of it comes from passion. And I was still, you know, a full-time student then. Um, I've been a full-time student most of my life, actually. Literally, this is my first year not being in school at 30. And it feels, it feels really interesting. But I've always, you know, in between academia and having, you know, I, I then went on to study economics at King's College London. Music was this escape. But I never ever ever saw it as a career ever a lot of the things you've touched on we're going to talk about in the coming minutes and moments i relate a lot to your early days of djing because i was the same as a 16 year old got a pair of decks turntables there were vinyl <laughs> records and i would go out and buy all these random records and mm. uh, you know get stuff from my grandparents and then just mix up as much music as i possibly could mm. didn't matter about the bpms and whatever and then just muscle my way in at friends parties and stuff like that so i totally relate to that we're going to talk a lot about that coming up so who were the musicians DJs and producers at that time that you really looked up to and what was it about them that inspired you that's uh that's a great question so I've always considered myself a sponge you know probably a pink sponge I soak in inspiration from everywhere but particular people that have stood out to me I remember my first trip to Ibiza that was really important just seeing Carl Cox um you know just understanding the art form of DJing and that was at about 18 years old I also you know back home there's a DJ called DJ Jimmy Jat who is the first DJ in Nigeria to actually take on the art form and the artistry of DJing and just you know not being behind in the corner of the room and really making DJing a focal point of a night and at the time you know I was also exploring nightlife very naughty I had a fake ID and during this time in the West End was the Funky House era, still my favorite era. And so, you know, records like, I mean, Crazy Cousins, um, you had people like Egypt in the morning. Um, you just had people like Doneo, oh, just um, African Warrior. Those records with their tempo and their, you know, their synths and the upbeat, the heavy vocal melodies really inspired me. Um, and every artist that I I admired at the time 
you know, naturally also delved into DJing. Um, and I was just such a fan of how they were developing it over here. You know, Nigeria is an amazing country, biggest economy in Africa, but it's always felt like sometimes we're behind. And it's only now that our DJs are finally getting that platform they deserve. But, you know, you already had the superstar DJs here and, you know, you already had the big radio DJs. Um, one of the, another gig that really stood out for me was um, I saw Annie Mack. I saw her in Hyde Park. I can't remember what show it was, but again, seeing a woman dominating and, you know, not being kind of like in the background of an artist was really inspiring for me. At that point, were you making music or were you just focused on DJing? I was not focused on either, you know, to be honest. I was simply getting through school and just having a great time. And I think this is really important for people to understand. You cannot thrive in what you don't love. And, you know, it's funny because the best DJs are DJs who love or want to love to party. So, you know, I was calling it research, but I was having a great time. I was partying and I was meeting people and... um I was really getting into understanding there was a whole backbone industry behind it. So I met promoters. So I found out promoters put on shows. Um, I met um, managers. I was like, oh, okay, so managers and agents exist and they do bookings, you know, because I would I would come and see the artist and maybe I'd be hoping to meet the artist but or the DJ. But I would find out actually it's I'd ask them questions and they'd be like, oh, I'd be like, how did you, how did you bring all those peop these people out there? They're like, oh, my agent booked. I'm like, oh, agent. And at that time, again, with the West End um, being somewhere I went to, you know, I started definitely um, networking with promoters and, you know, I was always the first and the last in the club. Um, and so I built some very strong relationships again thinking these were coming useful, you know, on a weekend when I'm working in the city one day as a banker or trader, whatever I thought I was going to be. Um, but not knowing that I was building some pretty cool lifelong relationships. And, you know, I had had my decks for two years. It was finally time to go to university, which, to be honest, was expected of me. And I chose London because I wanted to be near I wanted to be in a city that, you know, had a thriving nightlife and one where I already had a network. And finally, I turned 18, so my fake ID was no longer needed. And, you know, one of the first things I did was actually just start as a young person, just start looking at what was going on with music technology. Because I then started realizing a lot of DJs were using Serato or Tractor. So I had learned using, you know, my CDs and my CDJs and whatever I had on my USB or CD was it. So I was thinking, oh, how are these guys able to go from genre to genre and hop around? And one of the really important people in my journey has been someone called Steve. Steve goes by the DJ name of Running Man. And he was an Olympic um, athlete turned DJ. And he had a club um, called The Hill and Muscle Hill. And uh, Steve really took me under his wing and, you know, allowed me to, not quite when the club was open, but in the beginning get familiar with Serato and that really changed me because Serato allowed me to use technology to discover things and understand how BPM worked and use color coding and organize myself. Then with Serato, you know, I got a new laptop um, for my 18th birthday. My poor parents were like, 
I'm pretty sure I said it was for like uni, but it was for music. And there comes with my free laptop something called GarageBand. And I'm like, ooh, what's this? And, you know, I, I produce on Logic, but it was a very early film of it. And I, you know, explored, I made songs. I I was very, very free with expression. And um, I had a great time. And that really probably opened me up to producing. And that's what then I started being known for. And my first, pro- I guess my first brand name, because a lot of my friends were rapping and singing for fun, as we all do when we're young. And I was really good at engineering. I was great at it. I could chop vocals up quickly. I could put the right filters on. You know, I could actually even somehow, I can't remember how I was doing it, but I could create instrumentals. I could basically fade out vocals, drown them out. Um, and so, you know, my first kind of artist name was Oteddy, which is like a short form of my last name. So it was like Oteddy Beats. And I was, I then started just exploring with loops and just different plugins. And I had a great time. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it was interesting because I really understood, okay, there's people that aren't just DJs. There's people that are sound engineers, there's producers, there's a whole world behind this. Um, but then I was also year one into economics at uni. So it was it was a busy time. Sounds like a busy time for sure. And it sounds like you, maybe without even knowing it, you were doing the background work. You were doing the research. You were getting to know the people. You were you know, practicing DJing. You were practicing and learning how to make music not really necessarily knowing where it was going to go but just as just because you were super passionate yeah and I think that's that's something that I love to always get across your passion will take you where you need to go because it's so much harder to do it the other way around you know now that I'm um, a businesswoman and entrepreneur you know sometimes I, I I regret losing that kind of that naive feeling of just doing things for passion you know adulting sucks but you know I was just DJing and producing because I loved it. It was sort of like my life was going in one way. I was going to be this oil trader and I was going to do this and maybe work for my family. And I was DJing because it was my escape and it was my love. And I loved producing as well. It's sort of like this this hobby then kind of went full circle on me. But without that initial passion, I don't think I would do well in it. And you get that feeling of I'm forcing it. And that's because you probably don't love it enough. It should feel natural. Nothing better than when what you love turns into your job and you get paid to do what you love. And that happened to me very naturally. To be honest, I was pretty much in denial about it. I would say, you know, until I guess maybe I'm a bit of a, I don't know, I'm a bit of a capitalist. Until I started making some serious money, I was like, oh, this is just a side thing. Because, you know, you meet so many people. Oh, what are your hobbies? DJing, playing music, getting the vinyl out. So I always thought it would be that until it was like, I think, you know, and we'll get to it, but like seeing myself on a billboard or, you know, kind of like signing big deals or getting a record deal, you're like, okay, this is not a joke. (laughs) All right, cool. Yeah, so we will talk about those things. So let's go to the art of DJing. You're a really, really great DJ. Thank you. Can you. Hold a crowd. You're, you can scratch, uh, and your selections. You are, did your research. I've done my research. You can scratch <laughs> really well, and your selections are on point. You really know how to work your crowd. So, first of all, how would you describe the role of a DJ? That's a great question. The role of a DJ is often de- like debated. I'm, I'm, 
you know, I've really struggled because I know why I got into DJing because I could for that night escape when you're in that musical journey and the dj is just taking you where you need to go you forget about all your feelings you literally float and so i want to do that for everyone and that means your crowd is your priority so i've always felt like you know as a dj my role is to service my crowd and that's something that not everyone believes in you know i struggled when i started meeting dj's that were like well i play what i play and this is it you know um, I think every DJ should be as open as they can. Well, it depends, you know, it depends. That's why also, obviously, you pick the gigs you pick. And But the reason that I think I've been able to be so diverse and I have such a big fan base is because I deliver to my crowd, you know, whether it's Afrobeats, whether it's literally hip-hop, drill, and my piano, whether it's, you know, me throwing in some oldies and some goodies and it's literally for me about servicing the crowd and letting them for that set just escape. Music is escapism, it heals. But it's a tough job. And I wonder why sometimes, I mean, what do you think? Why do, I found that out more kind of moving to the UK where it's like, well, I only play this and this is what I do and this is my USB set and this is what I'm doing. Or sets are so planned. I've never believed in that. I'm a bit of a panicker DJ and my team know this because, you know, we go, I'm like, what's the crowd like? I'm backstage like, what's going on? I don't care if they said this. What did the crowd really like? What were they like for the first set? How did they react to this? I want to know because I want them to enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I guess I see it as there's different types of DJs, and so you know each to their own. Yeah, you know, I'm not one to judge how people want to want to be their own DJ because it's really um, about someone expressing themselves, and different people maybe earn the right to play just for themselves. Through, through well, how things. do you, well? I love to have that conversation because is that a positionality thing? Is that something that you get with status? Because it's hard because even even. You know, I've been to some I've been to some some sets of really amazing DJs, but I haven't necessarily felt maybe fulfilled as, you know, as um as an audience member or, you know, you're saying that maybe they've earned that. How do you think you earn that? Well, I think that some people will earn that right, maybe through their own productions and that kind of thing, through their own brand. But what I was going to say is some people earn that right, but some people just think they can do it and it flops. <laughs> And then they don't. Oh, you know, they I have don't. been that person, a hundred percent. I think it's interesting, and I think it's about crowd. It, I think it's about crowd interaction. So again, I remember, like, I'm used to seeing. Um, you know, I I love DJing with a mic. I want to talk to my crowd. You know, I don't. I know they're there for music, but I want to know how they are feeling. I want to know. You know, as a female, I want to shout out all my females in the room. I want to. I want to get them excited. I want to take them up and down, and you know, come out. I want to leave the decks and interact with them. So I remember one of my first gigs in the UK. I was like, "Where's the mic?" They were like, "We don't want a mic." We don't want the DJ just play your music and go. And I found that quite interesting. Um, and we can talk about when I moved to New York soon, but that's something I picked up from New York because, you know, some DJs are literally like, I've seen some DJ sets where people don't mix. They just talk between the songs, but the crowd are there for them. I don't know. I definitely don't have it figured out, but it's that balance, you know, and I mean, I'm also not, it's annoying when someone's like, oh, can you shout me out? It's my birthday. I'm just like, the mic doesn't work. 
And some some DJs don't have the character and the personality to to do that on the. They mic. let the music do the talking. Some, you know, some people love that. You know, some people have the personality. I think that's again, there's 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 different type. In my how I see it is there's different types of DJs, and it, you know that's gonna serve a different type of crowd I guess I agree I think also it's just I've been in a I've been through a journey where I've had to adapt and you know like I just I came off radio last year and you know it's if you asked me if I could do radio before I'd have said no but it's a skill set I picked up from being a DJ and having a mic so it's really interesting because I also feel like and we can talk about some of my uphill battles but I think because I've always kind of struggled with finding you know, it hasn't been an easy sort of um, an easy. There's been a lot of ba- barriers for me to enter the industry. I've come like I can do this. You don't want this? Cool, I won't do it. But I can do that too. You know, I've I've kind of really kitted myself to have every single skill set possible. Even scratching, I barely scratch these days. I probably don't need to scratch. And there's a lot of great DJs that don't scratch, and that's okay. But I've also been in situations <laughs> where you know um, my skill sets. I've ha- have been my skill set has been questioned. And I've had to be like, cool, you want to see something? <laughs> you know, so I, that that also comes probably as defense defense mechanisms. Yeah, I, and I, I totally uh, understand that and appreciate that. And, it, you know, in, in many ways, it makes you a better DJ, right? Yeah, but also, you know, I really want the audience to understand there's so many things you learn that you'll probably never use, <laughs> like my three degrees. But <laughs> it's just worth, that one you know, there. just like, whoop. But it's one of those things where you don't regret it. I don't regret learning to scratch. But also I I, I got to the point where I was like, I'm not going to do, you know, a scratching competition. So, and I have had moments where I'm scratching and I hear a couple of boo, like just play the music. We just want to hear the song. So you've got to also read your crowd. Yeah, for sure. So how do you prepare for your DJ sets? And then how do you express yourself in that? So the way I've evolved also reflects the way i've i've prepared so you know even with you take it back to back in the day it's our friend's birthday or whatever and literally we're like not being paid and we're just so excited to be there you know i i over prepared where i had every song every cue point every i even had my transitions planned spin back um wheel out mix drop i mean and what you realize when you're there is nothing goes to plan and creativity is a feeling not a process and so every time I've over prepared it's really 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 not gone the way I've wanted it to go I've been anxious I've been over analyzing the crowd um I've you know even my mic work you know it's like if you're gonna say if you're gonna be a mic kind of DJ and you're gonna be you're gonna interact with your crowd you know you can't be like hi guys yeah cool fun you gotta own it so it's a feeling so the way I prepare first of all I make sure that I'm good because I've realized that when I'm not good I'm not a great DJ you know it's not to say that I'm a bit you know like maybe I'm dealing with heartbreak and I end up just playing Celine Dion all night it's not like that but I need to also be part of the crowd I need to submerge with them so I usually first of all I like to get there as early as I can I haven't been great at that recently but you know I remember back in the day I'd be there like two hours before I'd enjoy the sets before me I'd enjoy sets after me you know I'd have a nice drink I'd interact I'd actually go there as part of the audience and that really for anyone that's building you have to you know to to do you have to know you know to 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 have you have to be it's one of those things so 
now these days <laughs> with my busy schedule and um lack of can I also say honestly I get so tired now I look back at the years of my DJing and I don't know how I did like five gigs in a row I am one gig and I'm like trying to recover but anyway I now kind of you know we have a booking form my team and I organization I think opportunity meets preparation so we have a booking form from whoever's booking me we need an idea of what my crowd wants what are we celebrating I also even ask are there genres they really don't want you know I think there's nothing wrong with asking you don't ask you don't get and I have been that person I'm not even joking and this was not that long ago where I played a record that I didn't know was not appropriate for the environment and so I like to make sure I'm aware at least of my demographics and you know the culture around me and also so I have a booking form which is through my team and also I again I'll go in there early now you know with my status quote-unquote you know I can't quite delve into the crowd early and I have to sit backstage in a green room but you know maybe my assistant will go out there and check out the vibe um, but I don't like one of I'm sure you're the same. I don't think any DJ likes being rushed on the decks or off the decks, you know. So I normally like to like, you know, catch a feel for what's going on before. From a technical technical side, you know, we've got a rider, which is really important. Believe it or not, to this day, that still goes wrong. I still get there. My typical setup is um, I love using controllers, you know, so I'm now fully a Serato DJ. I love using controllers. My favorite controller is probably the um pioneer 1000 srt it's so easy one unit huge jog wheel feels like you can grab it you can scratch you can mix it it's got built-in effects fantastic but most of the times it's club kit using cdjs and you know just a. Uh, I i actually really like the nexus mixer as well and the cdjs the cdjs 3000s as well which are good i like anything that feels really solid I also have these little baby decks. They're little Hercules set. It's literally like that. And I, you know, we put it in my backpack in case there's technical issues. But the thing is, I've also learned to let go of that. I take it so personally. I used to, and I still struggle with it. You know, when you get to a gig and you cannot play, has that happened to you before? Well, when you can't play. You can't play because, the yeah. Technical the technical goes, right? Yeah, yeah, that's happened it's, a few isn't times. Isn't it so heartbreaking? It's annoying, it's frustrating. I've played in, especially, um, yeah, just played in different countries and you kind you of rock up. And, and you're they, there they, and they, there's they, nothing you can do. You know, you're on Google looking for the nearest, you know, uh, sound shop or you're messaging friends like, do you know someone? Yeah. I've now come to peace with it because as long as we've got our rider. So what I would say is even if anyone is up and coming, start, you know, start bonding with your equipment. Know what you like and you get to the level where, I mean... Now, my riders are literally contractual. So if they're not there, won't happen. There's mm -hmm. funny things in my riders, though, which have evolved over time. Like now, every gig, contractually, I must have cupcakes. Um, but I have never not DJed because they aren't cupcakes. Someone gave us muffins, but we still let them off. Um, but also just, you know, the equipment is really important. And I have taught, you know, I've taught p people on my team to kind of sound check for me. Yeah. Because I used to, sound check is very important. I used to just over just think it was whatever but it is really important because um a lot of the time clients or crowds don't understand the way sound works and yeah. you know even just having a booth monitor that's really important to me i want to hear my mixes fresh live and i want to be able to 
I want to be able to enjoy my mixes too. You know, so I've now, you know, I'm not a pro in acoustics, but I understand how important it is. Yeah. So sound is very important. And, you know, I have blown a few speakers in my career, um, which aren't great. Um, and happens. yeah, you know, bad sound just sucks, doesn't it? It does, it does. So how do you organize your music? Because there's so much music yeah. coming in these days. Oh. How do you organize it? Okay, so this is something that is work in progress. I'm a very honest person. So, you know, I have so many amazing, this is the great thing about technology. You know, another reason I switched to Serato Record Box. It's nice to go back. You know, now I play very organically. You know, I, it's kind of autopilot for me. So I don't have to plan my sets in chronological order. But I have certain just record crates that I know that I can count on and I'll feel good. And I even have records. I have a whole playlist, which is called kind of like testing the crowd. So I play certain records to see how they react. Um, and I do that through crates. So, you know, it can be organized by BPM, by genre, by key by artists you know these days technology allows you to do whatever but what's really important for me is if I you know if I really didn't enjoy a set or I I really enjoyed a set I can go back to my history and see my playlist um one thing I'm bad at is organization and we thank God actually now technology has allowed us to be able to download with the right tags you know I literally remember the worst time when I had unnamed tracks everywhere so for the life of me i was loading records to play just guessing you know according to the bpm it would work and that is very bad um another thing i do to organize myself is you know i try and put cue points um again sometimes i have actually no i admit it i have gone into a bit of visual djing which is bittersweet you know because when you do it when you've done it i've done it for over 10 years um I remember when I first started, I was listening and sort of like hearing back and really trying to make sure the mix was in line. Now I'm just like moving my jog wheel like, okay, yep, this is through my colors. But I think one of the things that really helps me as well is just being a bit more patient. You know, I I went through this phase, especially when I was in New York, where because of hip hop, you know, attention spans are shorter. I was dropping records like 15 seconds of each record. And actually, I've realized I'm enjoying now getting back into proper mixing and, you know, just playing with it and going in a journey, pulling the FX down and kind of like echoing out and doing things in a much more exciting pace. And that's also great. It depends on the crowd and how fast paced they are. Um, you know, the way I will mix and organize myself for a Ministry of Sound gig versus, you know, like... A presidential inauguration is very different. And so the way you organize is important because it reflects how you'll be able to react. DJing is a reactive thing. And this is what I think. It's in my opinion. But you will go to that room and until you're behind those decks plugged in, you will not know what to expect. You can prepare as much as you want. So why not give yourself as much, you know, cushioning as you can? Those songs that I've always thought, never play them have been my go-to songs sometimes so it's really really a process what advice would you give to someone starting out on their dj journey don't do it i'm joking <laughs> do it because it's the best job in the world well first of all going back to i guess what we've discussed first of all i would ask them why are you djing you know is it because it's cool 
Is it because it makes money? Is it because you get access to really cool places? Is it because you get free clothes? I don't know. That's why I do it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Um, So why? You know, again, linking to myself, I can only talk about my story. I got into music because it was a savior for me. It was an escape route. It made me feel closer to my home. It made me deal with emotions. It helped me grow up. And so when you have that passion and it's your root, the rest is whatever you want it. But I would urge them to really ask themselves why. We should ask ourselves why we do anything. Sometimes in life we do things because it's expected of us. And I have plenty of examples. But DJing was the one thing that I wanted to do and I did it. Now, when you find that passion, how do you actually execute it? Well, the first thing you need to do is actually look at it as a proper business. If you want this to be your job, despite it being creative, you must look at it as a business. So I was in the UK. I was from Nigeria and I looked at my market. I'm a young black woman. You know, how do I enter an industry? First of all, is the industry welcoming to young black women? Is it welcoming to young African artists? Is it welcoming to me? What can I give? What can I? What makes me unique? What's my niche? What am I adding to it? How do I want to enter? Do I want to enter as a producer? Do I want to enter through a venue? Do I want to enter through my music? How do I want to enter? And then what's going to keep me there? How am I going to evolve? Because when I open the door, and that's the thing, it's about opening doors. It's not about putting yourself in there and locking it. How am I going to make sure it's sustainable? And how am I going to make it my bread and butter. How am I going to make this sustainable economically as well? And that's why actually I'm really glad I went to school and I'm glad that I had academia because what it did was it very quickly helped me separate myself from people who were viewing it as a vibe. You know, when I decided I wanted to become a full-time DJ, I also set up my business to make sure that I was running it as something that could be, I guess realistic you know because you I I can I have so many friends and people that I started DJing with who have not been able to continue because they didn't make it a business and I really encourage everyone to study and understand the business of the industry because it's really important if you're going somewhere and you will go somewhere if you're passionate but you will have to make decisions and you have to be smart and you have to be strategic And that's important. It's not a fun conversation to have and maybe not one you should have in the middle of a gig. But it's important to to basically set yourself up for the best possible result. So do your research, do the work, think about it like a business and be passionate. That's really important. That's super important. And also, you know, be the best you can be. I mean, you know we talked about some of the strengths and some of the things that people focus on. There's great people that are are amazing at scratching. There's great people that are amazing at certain genres. What is your thing? And my thing has always been being a crowd pleaser. And my thing has always been being visual, you know, and expressing myself. And what is your thing? It's about finding out that thing because that thing will not only open doors for you, but it'll keep you going. That's some amazing advice about being a DJ. Let's move on to Cuppy the Artist. Yes. How did you evolve from DJ Cuppy into Cuppy the Artist? I was able to build a brand as a DJ and I was flourishing. And, you know, that happened from 18 all the way down to sort of 25. And I had moved to Ni- back to Nigeria and I was conquering ground and doing amazing things. But 
I remember just standing there at one of my gigs, you know, and it just became very anonymous and it was just happening naturally and thinking, oh, I keep playing music. That's not mine. I would love, you know, those moments that the crowd does singing back and those phenomenal things that I've been able to create through mixing other people's music. What if it was my own? And I just want to quickly flag that it's important to keep yourself hungry and ambitious, you know, not get complacent because we all have goals in life and you just hit a point where you're constantly just smashing through your goals and you need to put some new ones sometimes because the dreams I had of DJing had happened. You know, I was DJing, I was getting paid for it and it was great. And so I decided to challenge myself and become not just a DJ but become an artist and the first opportunity of that actually rose very very randomly it was from a fellow DJ called DJ Spinnell who's definitely hands down one of the biggest African DJs in the world if not the biggest and he said Kapi I really like your voice you know let's we were doing a remix of Major Lazer's um, record shout out to Diplo another DJ I love and he just got me to do some vocals. I mean, talk vocals. He didn't even ask, him, ask me to sing. And I was like, okay, I don't sound bad. I really like being in front of the mic. I was already comfortable as a DJ. Um, and so after I did that remix, super casual, it was just on SoundCloud, um, I had spent a lot of time with artists. Now, I was at the level where artists were courting me because artists want DJs to play their music. And a particular artist I love, probably my favorite artist in the world is Techno. And me and Billie Eilish share that in common. He is so phenomenal. And, you know, he had said, come listen to my new song. Again, invited a bunch of DJs. And I was like, you know, I remember at the end of the session, I was like, you know, I'd really love to make my own music. He was like, yeah, why not? So I essentially, in a very healthy way, stalked him for a while in terms of just rocking up to the studio and being around for a very long time, nothing happened. And I really want listeners to understand patience is of the essence, especially with artists. Artistry is a sensitive thing. And I watched him work on so many, I watched him do his album. And there came a moment where there was a song and I was just kind of like humming and I was like, oh, ha ha ha, green light, pom pom. You know, I was just kind of like, you know, I was always playful. It was just cool to watch epic things happening. And anyway, we did like a little, he was like, oh, can you just record this for me? I'll re-record it later. And it never got re-recorded. So my first single, Green Light, um, was actually Techno's record. And I was just basically, you know, he gave me the melody, I did the words, and he was, it was a holder, it was just holding vocals for him to re-record, and it ended up being my first release. Um, and that's how it happened, so naturally, didn't plan it. Now, what I would say, and I talk about this a lot, the stress of being an artist, you know, that song came out, and it was Cuppy featuring Techno, the stress of it is, it's very different making music to releasing music, and this is the wild side of things, you know, as an independent artist, but having a first single with someone like Techno was a lot of pressure. He had expectations as every artist should for release, for videos, for marketing. And so there was a whole new world that I had to operate. We released it in Nigeria and it did very well. Still probably my most streamed single, but it's one of those things where I was just not accustomed to that. And it was tough. It was pretty tough understanding you know, wait, um, 
I was used to people giving me my their music. I now had to go and put my music to the world and, you know, things like streaming had just come in and playlisting and it was, you know, the same sort of the same crates and the same sort of um I guess music blogs I was getting my music from I now realized I had to get my music into it was a very different it was flipping the side of the coin and the respect I have for artists now is on a different level it's hard and the consistency um so yeah one of the things that I think helped me as well was I was always active on social media so I already had a big following but a hundred percent Techno took a chance on me and I, I'm still grateful for it. So having had that success with Greenlight, I went on to do about four or five different other singles independently before um, I got signed by Platoon. Cool. So you've, you've released those five singles. You end well, up signing with Platoon. Yeah. I mean, I released those singles independently. So I used websites like DistroKid and, you know, but the sheer volume and the fan base I had was completely, I guess, just excited and activated and so I realized that I needed help and I think that's another important thing I really want the audience to understand it is such such a lifelong skill to have to be able to acknowledge you need help and you'll be surprised there's people willing to help and there's some people whose job it is to help like labels and then being signed to platoon then you you start working on your album right well yeah the next phase for me there was really just you know um I had a catalogue of five independent singles. So, you know, between that and getting signed was a big, big space. It's important to understand, you know, I didn't just kind of get picked up. You know, I had five independent singles and I had the numbers to show for it. My fan base was already activated. You know, I had been consistent on all social media platforms. So I went to I went to um, different labels and distributors with actual material and that's important and I used to get frustrated because in the beginning I thought someone would just pick me up you know you hear the amazing stories of oh I just saw this person here performing and I knew she would be a star no I had to do it on my own and it was really good because I had learnt. and when you do things on your own and you know it's so much harder for anyone to play you so it was exciting to partner up a platoon that was actually at a time where I had just started my first big gig in radio I had just launched um the first African show on Apple Music um, on Beats One at the time and it was really exciting so uh, it was great and it was very different experience for me having an A&R and having you know a marketing team and having you know people actually helping you strategize plan your videos advise you you know down to the order of how you should do things and you know we signed an album deal which was exciting and that was the hardest thing I've ever done. My album took me about a year and a half to finish. And it wasn't because of the music. It was the logistics, the business, the clearing. You know, I had very big artists for a first album. And I was traveling around the world trying to shoot videos, trying to get verses recorded. I don't know how many. I think I have over 14 artists on my album. And that's a lot. The credit list is amazing. I mean, what was it like working with Wyclef and Julian oh, Marley? And I mean, Banks? yeah, it was phenomenal. I The Wyclef story in particular is just classic. Don't ask, don't get. And so this is important for people to understand. I literally DM'd Wyclef, Jean, from the Fugees, you know, three-time Grammy winning, winning songwriter artist and said, I am such a fan of yours. And I love, this is what I said to him, I want your advice on this song. 
didn't ask him to be on the record and how many times do we message people and they don't reply bear in mind I'm so used to no's it doesn't even feel like it doesn't feel like a loss anymore so I was just like mm. I mean there's a bunch of people that are still yet to reply my dms Nicki Minaj but anyway Wyclef came back and said you know what Cuppy yeah it's a good record but I think it'd be better with me on it I was like and he actually recorded and sent it to me I kid you not this went down on Instagram DMs and then obviously the verse is recorded but obviously then clearing it is a whole different story but I'm so grateful for that opportunity so I have a record on my album singing with Wyclef I mean that took a lot of I, I wouldn't even lie after he sent his version I had to re-record my part like five times but it's a beautiful record Wale and I'm really proud of it what would you say you learned from making the album? Learning learning is important to me and my album has taught me so many lessons. First of all, I learned um, patience is important. So, you know, I, I went with the whiteboard kind of like, oh, great, we're going to record in the studio for three months and then we're going to put it out. None of that happened. So what I learned is to be fluid, you know, and collaboration. An artist will do an art, what an artist wants to do, just like I was doing what I wanted to do. So... You know, I, I tried to rush the process. Your verse is fine. You know, there was a scenario of an artist not feeling one of the verses they did and they wanted to re-record. And I was like, no, we have a deadline, you know, and that record never came out. And I realized that actually I should have been more fluid. So you have to be patient. And another thing I realized is, you know, don't forget I was juggling. I think I have 11 records on that album. So I was juggling 11 records at the same time. I probably, I probably in hindsight would have done a shorter project. You know, that's why people sort of do EPs and kind of do uh, uh, extended plays over long plays because it was difficult. But I would say that I've learned also, you know, you've got to be your biggest cheerleader. You know, despite having a, a label and having, you know, the kind of like cushioning of marketing, I really had to... Um, shove my album down people's throats and really embody it and make sure I loved it and another thing is that when you make the choice to change your form of expression sometimes it takes a while for people to get used to it so you know I focus so much on be being copy the artist at that phase that I think copy the DJ kind of suffered a bit because I was obsessed with you know artistry and I remember when I found myself I was booked for a show and they gave me a mic and that was when I just thought, oh my goodness. I mean, no decks, just a mic. I was like, okay, it's happened. And that's how I know that I actually prefer DJing to artistry on its own because I felt kind of like alienated. I felt naive. I just felt like naked without DJ decks in front of me. But that was an important phase for me to go through. When you're really engrossed in making making your tracks, you know, you're working on a, on a record and you're listening to it over and over again. How do you deal with getting bored of your own records and keeping the passion there? <sighs> that's that's keep, a, keeping some kind of perspective on that's it. That's such a great, great question. So it's funny. I I was saying I recently got engaged and congratulations. Thank you. And like we got engaged after two days, which is quite hilarious. But I'm not here to talk about my love life. But the point there is, I so we got to know each other backwards, and we're getting to know each other backwards. And um, Ryan, my fiance, is like, wait your music is so good. And I was like, mm. he's like, why didn't you play me this? He's there listening to, you know, my records. And so what I found is, you know, we all get bored of our, our own stuff. And 
watching someone else fall in love with it ignites that again. So I'm just like, you know what? Yeah, Karma was a good record. Gelato was lit. And so kind of like, again, that works for audience as well. But I, you'll never catch me in the car listening to my own records. Like, it's impossible. That comes with me being a sponge because I want to hear other people's records and soak that in. And also that comes with, yeah, the continuous, you know, that year of promotion, literally, I was like, I remember I'd be on radio, like when they're playing the song, I'm like, can we just put it down? Because it's literally like hearing the same thing over and over again but watching someone like Ryan fall in love with it as a fan really gets me excited and that happens with also my cupcakes my fans in general but I think also what I love is remix culture you know I've been able to not release but I've been able to be in the studio and sometimes rejig some of my records for fun because there's constantly new genres and that's really helped me but I think it's something I need to work on I don't know why I don't I don't know whether that comes down to criticism. You know, my my album did very well, but it was highly criticized because I think a lot of people weren't comfortable with this phase of, hey, wait, 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 she's dropped the decks and picked up a mic. So I think maybe that in my mind has affected me a lot. I think also maybe having confidence is important. I'm not a born singer. You know, I really had to work hard. I had to have a vocal coach to lay those those verses down and that was hard you know I think it just didn't come natural to me so you know I listened to my voice and I'm like oh because I remember we had to do that take 20 hundred times you know so that's something I struggle with and I wonder whether I'm the only one I wonder how I mean but you surely think you're like I we were like no we know that someone like Thames or Beyonce you know, you're thinking they probably don't get tired of their own voices because it's great, but actually sometimes they do. Yeah, I think it's something that every artist deals with. And it's one of the reasons I, you know, in my own production experience, you know, I've experienced that a lot. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to start the, the songwriting camps because these are challenges that music producers and artists face on a daily basis. Yeah. But it's not often talked about. Yeah, it so isn't. How how do you deal with it when you're actually in the moment and to try and get some, yeah. some perspective well, on it? Well, what I, yeah, what I have to do very often is I have to take breaks. You know, even last week we were working on a record and I literally said to my team, I was like, you listen to it because it started just becoming grey matter to me. We had made very tiny tweaks, but you know, it's hard. It's a feeling that you have to sometimes step away from and reimburse in. Environments as well. You know, my favorite thing is definitely listening to music in the car. You know, in the past for my album, I made my um, my friend open his club early so I could just blast my album and listen to it in a club environment. I think also, you know, you mustn't look to other people for validation. So, you know, I've had in the past, I've had maybe A&Rs I don't agree with. They've said that's stronger. I felt like the other was stronger. So it's important to basically use other people's ears, you know, to reignite your own passion and your own love because it takes you back to why you made that song and the way you felt. But you mustn't depend on other people. I think it's a fine balance. I think it's also important to take advice so if someone feels a certain way and I agree that is a great thing and if I don't it's okay you know music is what is good music good music is music that people like and not everyone will like it and that's okay we don't like all music we hear and that's okay and even if you listen to your favorite record 300 times in a day you're going to get bored of it you are going to get bored of it and I think the the kind of the um the top of the mountain there is just 
when it's fairly new, you know, when it's when it's fairly, you know, it's kind of like maybe like the 50th time you've played it. But when you hit 500, you're just like, because music is not supposed to be overly anticipated. I don't make, you know, my mixes aren't. I, I love to keep people on their toes and I love to tease and I love for people to be like, no, is that coming? Is that coming? You know, so I also have to accordingly keep myself, you know, on my toes. And that's hard to do. It's even annoying. I don't know how you feel when you're not DJing. Do you not find yourself just not being able to enjoy like a normal person you know you're subconscious of another dj and you're listening and you're judging the mixes it's so annoying yeah yeah when you're listening to another oh, dj you're, you're you can't help but judge it. i'm so annoyed i just want to i'm like just it's your day off let it go enjoy it i'm like even that that happened with me with everything it happened with radio i'm listening to people's links yeah it even happens, <laughs> it happens just, to me it's, as a radio producer. it's so annoying right yeah just enjoy it yeah, and the thing that we love, we, we got into it because we love doing it and then you can't actually enjoy that thing anymore because you're It's so sad. That's probably why I don't go out as much. <laughs> You've clearly got a very entrepreneurial mindset. Where did you get this from and how did you develop it? A hundred percent. I think my family has been a huge influence in my life. You know, I grew up in Nigeria, like I said, but I grew up with two entrepreneurial parents. You know, my mother and father were always, always, always on their grind, on their hustle and when you grow up around that and realizing the value of money, you really, really, it just gets instilled in you. So, you know, one of the reasons I moved to the UK at 16 is because my parents needed me and my siblings to be in boarding school because they were full-time entrepreneurs building up their businesses. They both did so very successfully. And it's important to say both because I also saw my mother not sit at home and just raise us. She was, she actually started her business before my father. And so it's important as a woman to have that kind of role model. And also you must understand growing up in Nigeria, we're all Africans, you know, and I think that's another dynam dynam dynamic thing I had to deal with being here. You know, my teacher was black, the lawyer was black, our landlord was black. You know, it's dealing with a change. But the entrepreneur in me was always there. And another thing that added to it was definitely moving to New York. I moved to New York because I got offered an internship at Jay-Z's Rock Nation. And that was also an interesting thing I did because... Some people would argue, you know, why go and work at a label when you should be building your career? You should be trying to sign with Rock Nation, not work for Rock Nation. But I think it was so important. Those two years were just so key to understanding the music business. And, you know, being that person that was helping build artists and learning. I, I particularly, my boss there was Brian Biggs and I helped him build his Africa strategy and just not being the artist but being behind the scenes was so important because when it came for me to have my moment you know in front of the stage I knew what was going on behind and I really want the audience and listeners to understand that you know it's about knowing all sides you know this is called open door it's about not just being going through the door it's knowing how the door is framed it's knowing how to fix the door it's every single thing the handle everything so what did you learn from working at Rock Nation? Um, well, I mean, I always say this quote, which is from Jay-Z's lyrics. He goes, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Which really means, you know, it's about you being the business. Jay-Z has built an empire that allows him to be on a record or not to be on a record. And that's when I realized what will keep me there is longevity and actual value in my copy brand and this is what a lot of people struggle with 
you know, I might one day not want to be in clubs or festivals. I might want to be chilling at home with my dogs, but I can still have a steady income if I have a brand that is of value. And that's why, you know, you've seen me venture into DJing, but also out of it. So, you know, I've been on TV. I've done a lot of radio. You know, I've actually launched my own jewelry line. I've really created a copy persona that is not overly tied to DJing. I actually haven't DJed in quite a few weeks, you know, and I'm busy with other things. And that's why it's so important to me. So I really learned that it's important to create an empire and to create, you know, almost sort of webs. So again, Jay-Z's had phenomenal artistries under Rock Nation from Rihanna to J. Cole. And that's something I would love to do. That's why I started Red Velvet Music Group. And, you know, I've been able to do other things like consult and do things that earn me money without being behind the decks. And it's kind of great because, you know, I do have friends that go night to night, gig to gig. And I've always just felt that that's not sustainable for me personally. And it's nice because when I do go behind the decks, it feels more exciting now. And it's something I cherish and I look forward to. I, I have been that person that was DJing, you know, Tuesday to Sunday. And it's exhausting. And you almost start taking it for granted. You know, from being that little girl that wants to be on deck so badly to actually being that person that's like, again, tonight... You know, and now I found that sweet spot, which for me is sort of like DJing twice a month and really making it an experience. So what do you think the secrets are to you building up a successful brand? Wow, secrets. I mean, first of all, they're not secrets because I'm more than happy to share them. The first thing is authenticity. So I am myself, you know, I I become so much more comfortable in my own skin and I've owned my narrative, you know, whether it means, okay, yeah, cool, I am from Nigeria and I do love Afrobeats or whether it means, yeah, I do like being on the mic. I've definitely owned and become comfortable with what what I love doing. I think also authenticity comes with passion. You have to love what you do. It is so obvious when I don't want to do something and I'm very bad at it. The older I'm getting, the more I've been in gigs that, you know, my agent knows not to book me for more than like two hours because after two two hours, I'm there like, mm. you know, I want to give it everything I've got. So know yourself. Another thing is interact. You know, it's amazing how I have a lot of fans, you know, but it's just even on social media, you can really make someone's day by just interacting with them and also be yourself, be vulnerable. I'm so honest, like I'm very, very honest with my fan base. I think that's what they like about me. You know, sometimes I'm like, guys, this didn't happen. I hate the idea of creating this perfect land literally for every yes I have like nine no's and it's important to make sure that people know that it's not I don't always get what I want and I've really had to build up you know and I'm still building I don't stop consistency is key I hate the idea of being complacent and you know it feels like another phase for me but I also like we were saying you can't I've earned the right to DJ twice a month because I DJ twice a day sometimes you know you have to build it up um, and I think happiness is the most important thing. If you asked me like two years ago what I wanted to do, I'd say I want to be the biggest DJ in the world. And I think the older I've gotten, I want to be the happiest DJ in the world. I want to love what I do. And when you're happy naturally, things work out. And we often associate success in the industry with, you know, numbers and money and positioning. And what I've realized is that, and I've been able to meet a lot of these people that have those things. And sometimes they're not happy because they're not doing what they want to do. And so the medium is definitely doing what you want to do and trying your best to amplify it. How do you handle no's? I kick a fuss. I'm joking. 
I often now, I first of all, I'm so used to it, you know. I have agents, I have management, I have people constantly pitching me, pitching stuff, pitching me to the world. So at this point, they probably don't tell me if it's a no, it just doesn't happen. But in the beginning of your career, you have to pitch yourself to the world. And the way you deal with no's is understanding a few things. First of all, sometimes it's not you because I used to think, oh, I'm not good enough. That's a good feel to have. It made me want to. So one of the reasons I got into scratching is because, you know, someone had I'd seen an email of someone saying, oh, she's not that much of a good DJ. I was like, yeah, I'm going to show them. But having that energy isn't always about you. Sometimes it's just not you. You're not the best fit and they have their reasons for it. Second of all, the way I deal with no's is also reflection. I look at opportunity costs and a lot of the no's that have happened have actually worked out in my favor. And it's never that feeling at the time. It feels horrible. But it's always given me an opportunity to be in a different place at a different time. So whether it's meeting other people, um, whether it's maybe concentrating on something else, you know, I mean, I've had to be in uni a lot of the time. So, you know, I'm pretty sure if I had all the yeses I wanted, I would have failed miserably I think it's also sometimes I've even gone to gigs that I haven't been booked for to understand and I've had really amazing experiences and fallen in love with music again so you've got to have a perspective on it that is mature and is open and that just takes time I want to sit here and say I've always been like that oh my gosh I haven't I have not been I've I've often been confrontational in the past why did you not book me you know I've often been bitter jealous you know, I've often tried to even sidestep and say, okay, fine, uh, you don't want me, I'll even do it for free. I've been so desperate and that's not the kind of energy that I think has worked out for me. And I also, in all honesty, have to say there's nothing I've wanted that I haven't gotten eventually. You know, might be 10 years later, you know, even just being on radio, I remember dreaming of having a radio show and I've done that twice and um, now you probably couldn't pay me to be on radio full time, you know, and we change as people, we evolve. So that, you know, that burning want and that burning passion of jealousy or rejection is often protection. It really is. And I'm, I've come to terms with that. It's a very mature thing and it takes time. So I'm not going to judge anyone for how they feel. And it really does not being wanted isn't nice, but you know, when you are wanted, you'll feel it and you'll get tired of being wanted. Sometimes I'm just like, I am not doing that gig. No, no, no. <laughs> We're coming to the end. I've got just a couple more questions. Well, wow, wanna... time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Let's talk about the maybe elephant in the room, racism in the industry. Of course. Um, being a black female, you would have, of course, come across loads of discrimination in the music industry. So what's your experience been? And what advice can you give to people who are experiencing the, the same, same kind of thing? Well, I think it's really interesting. I, for one, am not, you know, unique when it comes to experiencing racism in the industry, especially in the UK. Again, coming from Nigeria, I've always known my identity. You know, I've known I'm Africa and I've always, I was born there. My, the African industry is majority black. But also there's a twofold. There's sort of being black and then there's being a female and then there's being in the UK. And so, you know, I've really, really, really had to kick down ceilings and some of them I haven't. You know, I've had to prove often, work twice as hard. Um, even just aesthetically, I'm a black woman with pink hair. You know, I've been told I can't DJ just based on my looks. Or, you know, I also come from a very entrepreneurial family. So that background also has been used against me. Now, the way in which I deal with that has always been to over deliver. And so I have worked my 
butt off to always just do the most, you know, be the best I can be, be as um, collaborative as possible, be the best my clients want me to be. You know, I've always pushed myself extra hard. And it's good because in an industry that we're in, also reputation does does go around and that's helped me a lot, but it doesn't solve the problem. I think that one of the things that I've struggled with most is actually not even the industry, it's sometimes the public. It's the fan base, you know? I've always wanted to be that person, that DJ that you can listen to and enjoy with your eyes closed and just your ears because we're in an we're in a world where it's just about there's so much facade and sort of aesthetics. I judge people even. It's hard not to. It's human nature. And so one of the things that I really struggle with is kind of imagery. And it's hard because, you know, the reputation, I always compare female DJs to female pilots. It's like, you know, it's sort of like, oh, great. But oh, is she going to be able to handle it? And there is there is that judgment. Women face that. And then as a black woman, it's sort of being in some of these big festivals where they already struggle with diversity for women. And then, you know, trying to engulf urban music, Afrobeat music, the odds are always, always against me. But I've used the opportunity to really seize the chance to open doors. And I've always looked at myself as a door opener and someone who has the potential to lay foundation if you have a good experience with copy hopefully that allows you to have good experiences with other people I'm always a pioneer you know I'm always the first to do things because I just do things differently and so um I now look at the experiences I've had and some of the hard things I've had to go through um you know from going to gigs that where I'm headlining and not getting in from the security you know me having to whip out emails and show that actually I'm the person and I've had to really embody that and accept it as it's just the the strifes of being a pioneer, you know, and things have changed and people are so much more vocal. And I always love solving things in the most amicable ways. Social media is a great tool, can also be a dangerous tool. I'm not a call out kind of person, but I will always give the opportunity to give feedback. You know, so my 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 dear team are used to writing letters and trying to advise people on how to deal with things in the future so that other people like myself don't have to have such bad experiences. And I want to say it's just music. It's happened to me in universities. It happens to me in restaurants. It's constant. And that's something that the world needs to work on. But what I can do is I can offer my services and my talent and try and make it soften people's hearts. But, you know, it's a tough one. But I, I choose to not be angry inside. And I think I'm also lucky. You see, in the UK, a lot of people are diaspora and they have generational um, um, generational inheritances and different things. And they haven't had the chance to really discover themselves. And I've been lucky enough to always have a home in Nigeria and be from there and speak the language. And so perhaps my perspective is different. What advice would you give to younger artists who are facing these kind of challenges? I think that it's tough. And I want to say be strong, but it's very tough. And that's the truth. And it's frustrating for them. And, you know, it's important, I think, to... I'm a talker, I love talking. And so, you know, I'm against, again, kind of cancel and call out culture. But I think it's interesting. A lot of people share these experiences. You know, 
a lot of people. I don't have to look too far to find another black woman that struggled in music. And sharing that struggle is actually quite healing and having those conversations. I've had so many conversations with people where we've been able to deal with things and talk about how we dealt with them or how we experienced them. And I've also advised, oh, well, I did this, I reported this, or I said this, and vice versa, I've learned about. There's some, there's actually a lot of help that exists there, but I think it's also your surroundings. One of the things that really helped me actually was, um, you know, just previously being on, on, on BBC One Extra was they have something called talks, and it's really interesting just learning the struggle of black people in the UK, which is something I'm not familiar with because I come from Nigeria and it's understanding perspectives. So my advice is honestly... It is so tough and it's a systematic problem, but you have to talk and listen to those who are going through the same thing. You know, there's changes in the world coming, but I would never put it on one person to do that. It's collective. For sure. But don't quit because of it. That's the hardest part. That is indeed the hardest part. And I've gone through phases in my career and not just because of racism, just constant. You know, we all want to quit sometimes, but don't quit because of that. And that's probably one of the, the key parts, isn't it, to keep on going despite those You challenges. have to keep on going because I'm an example of that. I think especially because I've had, and I've been lucky to have so many options, but I've stuck to this music thing, you know. And so it just shows how the highs are, you know, still better than the lows. But boy, there are some lows. <laughs> For sure. So let's talk about Copy Foundation. Yeah. Can you tell me what it is? How I mean, can people get involved? The Copy Foundation is an amazing platform that I started, which particularly helps women in Nigeria. And, you know, I'm proud we feed 70,000 70, children a day. But it's something that I do because I want there to be more copies. And what I realize is I have been fortunate enough to, even just sitting here talking to you, it's not just my experiences or it's not just, you know, my hard work. It's also my education. So access to education is everything because knowledge is power. So whether or not I'm using, you know, my economics degree right now, it's about having that confidence to learn, absorb and understand. So every girl needs that, whether she's going to be an astronaut, whether she's going to be a chef, whether she's going to be a ballerina or a DJ. We need to give girls the opportunity to at least pick their path and that starts from education so it's something I'm very passionate about and you know it's something that I'm proud of and I've been doing a lot more here in the UK as well working with Save the Children I'm an ambassador uh, I'm an ambassador for them and a board member for them and one of the things I'm really proud of is we recently launched the Cuppy Foundation well the Cuppy Fund at Oxford University which is another great hybrid for me because it supports and basically provides resources for any African students in Oxford University that are struggling with school. And that for me is another way of making sure that despite my experiences as first moving here, you know, I'm making it easier for someone else and softening that, softening that for them, you know, because I found it really tough at 16, never been here before suddenly moving here. So it's helping that cultural experience and it's a big change and shift, you know. So what I do, even though it's not directly necessarily opening a recording studio and getting creatives in. I think education is that little seed. And, you know, in those 70,000 children, there might be one copy and that's good enough for me. Amazing. So we'll make sure that we put all the links and everything in the description of the podcast. And it's amazing that you do that. So, yeah, please continue doing that great work. <laughs> Pretty much the end of the interview now. What are your three top tips for independent artists my three top tips for independent artists this year. Number one, 
passion. You have to know why you're doing it. And keep asking yourself, regardless of how successful you get, I'm going to leave this podcast asking myself why. You know, it's important. Number two, evolve. So important as well. You know, I remember when I first started talking about my musical career, it's very different to the conversation we've had today. You have to make sure you're evolving. That also means discomfort sometimes. You know, I tried being a full-time artist, didn't enjoy it. I'm now finding a hybrid between DJing and artistry. But you have to evolve. And number three, enjoy. Be happy. Life is too short. The minute it feels like you're not enjoying music, that's okay. You know, obviously you have to work hard and working hard isn't always fun. But if it's not giving you that warmth giving you that satisfaction over other things and it might not be for you and that is okay because you don't know until you try and you know just all in all with sort of saying passion evolving and just enjoying it's all about really just capturing each moment and I always say I don't know what's going to happen with my copy brand tomorrow I'm up and down I'm very very sporadic because I do what I love but I just do as much as I can and I'm doing it as long as I can, helping as many as I can and enjoying it as much as I can. That's it. Great advice. So what do you have coming up for 2023? Well, I'm working on new music finally and I found my sweet spot. So I've got some records I've been working on. My first single should be out this summer. And I've just been, you know, finding a way of balancing DJing and artistry. So that's exciting. I have lots of exciting features on their UK household name, names. Um, I'm excited as well about, as always, festival season. You know, I'm, I had a great first run last year doing Glastonbury Wireless, Reading Leeds. Excited to do that again. And I think, you know, now I'm between here, the UK and the Middle East. So that's a exciting market to explore. Um, and, you know, definitely more for me on... You know, on I guess the broadcast side, I have a couple of exciting things with TV coming up. And yeah, it's just really about continuing my journey of fulfillment and exploring myself in different ways and also just really focusing on happiness um, and definitely hopefully not going to any more education. Love education, but I feel like now it's time for me to, you know, enjoy the university of life and really put myself out there and work. So it's exciting, you know, in a world that's so uncertain, we have to take things day by day. I'm so excited to see what you do next. Cuppy, <laughs> yeah, you, unpredictable, right? Well, you're really inspiring. You know, you've, you've clearly achieved so much already in your in your life. And from DJing to artistry and everything else that you do, the foundation, it's really, really great. So thank, thank you for you spending so much. so much time with us today. And I suppose keep the door open. <laughs> cheesy <laughs> <laughs> love that thanks again Cuppy. thank you thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today if you enjoyed this episode please spread the love and share it with a friend we've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast so make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources <laughs>